Hello and welcome to Canucks Hour, or Canucks Talk, excuse me, because it's a two-hour show now. I'm Thomas Drance. I'm your host today with Jamie Dodd on The Morning Show, and I'm joined this week. It's a very special week here at Canucks Talk. It's the Athletic Takeover Week. I've got Harmon Dial sitting in the co-host's chair. How are you, sir? I'm great. I uh, sprinted on my way to, uh, to catch the bus to get to the studio because I assumed that uh, you'd be here really early and I didn't want to be showing up 10 minutes before the show. And, and uh, then I showed up 10 minutes before the show because that's how I do it. I prep at home. I prep at home, Harmon. Before we, uh, before we get into your dodging raindrops from the bus stop to the studio here, uh, I'd like to tell everybody that Canucks Talk is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team. Visit avenuemachinery.ca or douglaslakeequipment.com for more intel. Of course, we are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, which Harmon Dial will need following his sprint, uh, is Canada's favorite orthotics provider supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. That many five-star reviews can't be wrong. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. And of course, if you'd like to engage with Harmon and I over the course of this program, you can text in to the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber is the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver or go online at DunbarLumber.com. All right, Canucks, winners of 7 and 8. At risk of taking themselves fully out of the real race for Connor Bedard. No realistic shot at the playoffs still, right? We're not doing that? Yeah, no. Well, forget about the race for Connor Bedard. That's long been gone. How about the race for a top 10 pick? Right. Right? Because that's that's a conversation now when you look at the gap between the razor-thin gap between them and St. Louis, who they're now uh, tied with, the Canucks, Mm -hmm. finishing lower, I think, because technically because they have fewer regulation wins, but they have a game against them uh, next week, I, I believe. And I mean, even teams like the Sabres are, are like right w- within them where if they continue this type of run, <laughs> imagine if they ha- have like this so, type. Sorry, they have to pass St. Louis, right? Because they're currently, team. and then another team because they're currently eighth. So they're currently eighth. So they'd have to pass St. Louis and another team to get to the 11th hole before they'd have zero odds at the first overall pick. That's that I mean for sure. You can have you have a 3% in the top 10 and then you're out. You can only move up 10 spots. So unlikely. I think they're going to be okay. They're yeah. going to they're going to be in the draft lottery with a chance, but a remote chance. A far more remote chance than maybe they should have had. I think I so thinking about this road road trip a little bit. You know, there's one thing I really liked, okay? And it was the game against Anaheim. I know Anaheim is a patsy team. Deeply unserious, like hashtag deeply unserious is how we usually describe the Ducks on this program. And yet, you know what? At the end of the day in the NHL, playing the second leg of a back-to-back, that's a schedule lost day for the Canucks, coming off of an appalling performance at the Staples Center. I know they got two points. That was a brutal performance. That was the worst performance since Rick Tockett took over. And I don't know that it's that close. Like, I don't think there's... Maybe the Seattle game? The game in Seattle? Seattle where they was got, worse, I think. I, see, I think Seattle was worse because the Kraken scored the goals. Demko made that Kings game look 
like it was less bad and helped the Canucks get two points they had no business getting. But I think it was every bit as bad, every bit as brutal. It's just that the Seattle game included the chances against. Um, the Kings game had fewer chances against, but had the Canucks generating nothing at all. Right, like there was nothing going on for the Canucks offensively. They didn't have the puck all night. I think it was up there with that Seattle game for the worst of the Talkit era. And what I liked about the Anaheim game was on the second leg of a back-to-back, having just played two really bad road games for me, because I thought they were miserable in Arizona too. I thought their defensive game was a mess in Arizona. Uh, I thought the LA performance was flat out embarrassing, despite the fact that they got two points. And then they crush the Ducks. And I think there's a there's an argument to be made that that was their best performance under Rick Tockett, aside from maybe that first game against Chicago. And to me, anyway, that at least shows that this group cares, which is a bar that we haven't always seen them jump over this season, past seasons, since this core was assembled. They cared. They cared. They tried really hard, and they put their boot into an overmatched Ducks team. And, and at the end of the day, I, th- I think this team's moving in the wrong direction. Watching Quinn Hughes play three of the final four minutes to close out a one-goal win against the Ducks at this time of year makes me... Like, if I had hair, I'd pull it out. But I still like the way that the Canucks showed up and responded as a group to a game in L.A. that clearly they, they felt wasn't up to their standard. I also think that Anaheim game was a credit to Rick Tockett because mm. when I looked at that first period... You know how sometimes in the old EA NHL games, or even some of the newer ones, you find what, there's always usually like one play, whether it's sometimes a cross seam or, or whether it's like the poke check, where it's like you can just abuse it. And so your whole strategy becomes just like abusing that one thing. It felt like in the first period, the Canucks had sort of found that cheat code, which is they essentially sent two forwards deep on the four check, which they don't normally do. And every single time in that first period, the Ducks would get would get the puck behind the net. Their defenseman couldn't go DDD because of that. And they'd have to funnel it to the walls. And then, boom, the Canucks would have either their third forward or the defenseman pinching up the wall. And three, four, five times just in that first period, I saw that. And they'd recover possession and then just sort of like dominate that zone time. Yeah, I think pl- that's... And play with the puck. Save your, save yeah. your gas, right? I think that sort of strategic adjustments sort of look at the ducks and say we don't think you can break the puck out we think this is something you can ex- we can exploit and then to successfully execute that i think that that was a really good look for talking yeah for sure and so the canucks come home having won two of three on the road and i would say they played two good periods and a good three on three overtime period like I th- you know, I thought they maybe had the balance of more dangerous shots against Arizona, but that wasn't like a goalie win for the Coyotes. I thought the Coyotes were materially better. They were better on special teams, which was the difference. Yeah. And the Canucks couldn't prevent them from generating. Like the Coyotes had 23 scoring chances in the first 40 minutes, five on five. That was a level of permissiveness that we haven't seen much from the Canucks. Um, again, the LA performance I thought was just dismal until the five on five period, but they come back, they absolutely stomp the Ducks in those first two periods. And honestly, they still had the preponderance of chances in the third holding the lead. So maybe let's go three periods. The whole game against the Ducks. But but at the end of the day, they're coming home. S- winners of seven of eight and two and one on the road trip. Um, 
I mean, what do you even say at this point? Well, some t- well sometimes this is what it's going to look like if this mm. team is going to try and make a legitimate push for the playoffs next season because we even saw it in the 2019-20 season where you'd have stretches where they're probably being outplayed, but they're hanging around and they have two things. They have the one-shot scoring ability, especially yeah. on the power play, and then they have goaltending being the 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 trump card. Right. Well, so long as Demko's healthy and playing like this. Yes. And, you know, I thought the Ducks game was a good example where both of the Canucks goals are engineered by the same three players. Right? It's like, that's one of those games you win because you employ Miller, Hughes, Pedersen, and the other team does not. And, you know, another thing I liked from this road trip was we got consecutive games with Pedersen power play goals. Something that shouldn't be remarkable, given his profile, given how he's produced throughout his career, but somehow this season has been. He's having this career year without feasting on the power play. And one thing I liked, both goals from the same spot of the ice, right? Well beneath the Bowman line and inside the circle, right? Like the release point on both shots is inside the circle, even if his body's not. That's key. Inside and low. That's what he's been lacking all season. He's been too high in that one-timer spot. If you go watch where the guys who score continuously from the Ovechkin spot score from, they're, like, deep. They're taking bad-angle shots, like like Stamkos and and Ovi, of course. Yeah. They're they're deeper in the zone. Pedersen's been too high and too far outside all season. Now he's got consecutive goals, and he's getting inside. It's a small change, but it— the, it, it, at this level, that extra foot or two makes all the difference for the goalies. Yeah, we see it with Drysdale all the time, right? Like, that's another example where it's like, he, he just wants to be, it doesn't matter what angle it is, but as long as he's not shooting from really high in the zone, and that's where obviously Connor McDavid's going to find him on the back door all day long, it is going to be interesting for me to see moving forward because, like you said, I think that's something where, especially from inside the, the, the dots he hasn't had as many of those sort of sorts of chances he's had to sort of lean on those um those one-timers from further out I'm curious to see though now that Horvat is gone right so you lose an elite power play weapon that penalty killers had to sort of converge on yeah he created a lot of space he created a lot of space I actually think we were probably underrating how important Bo Horvat was to the power play yeah you know, and, and granted, that's easy to do when he's a guy who barely touches the puck relative to the three guys up high who get to do the fancy stuff. But that ability to get open the way he did and demand attention the way he did, uh, you know, I, the power play hasn't looked the same since he left. Well, it makes sense because I think in the last three seasons, he led all Canucks players in power play goals and it wasn't even close. No, And so it's funny because Pedersen was almost a decoy for a long time, oh, right? Yeah. Where it's like... You just have this guy as a threat, and it's like penalty killers also have also have to keep an eye on him. And so it's like when you're a penalty kill and you're looking at all of these elite power play weapons, you can't defend, defend them all. And so it's like you're going to have to sort of pick your poison. And so, you know, sometimes it would be Horvat that benefited from that. I think earlier this season, teams sort of started to catch up, and you'd see more instances where it's like, okay, Penalty killers are, are like, okay, we know now that Horvat's the most dangerous threat from the bumper. Then that created space for, like, Kuzmenko, right? right. And he'd score a lot of those. Well, and, and the, a lot of the Kuzmenko stuff, too, came from Pedersen being a threat as a playmaker yeah. from that left side, right? Like, he kept finding Horvat and Kuzmenko for tips, 
from his spot. And it's it's an amazing thing that he was able to be that effective and, and probably a testament to the um, sort of deterrent power of that of that one timer. Because if you think about where Pedersen is on his one timer side, Hughes up top is not a one timer threat when Pedersen has the puck. JT Miller on the other side is not a one timer threat, right? Bo Horvat in the bumper is also not a one time. Like he's not, he shouldn't be an effective playmaker from that spot. But going like downhill in like a very like video game sonar, like this is your range, sort of, um, you know, think about it as like an isosceles triangle toward the net from his spot. He was lethal as a playmaker for a bit. And then we actually saw less of that and they started falling in love with him taking point shots and stuff. That needs to stop. Where Pedersen scored from those two shots, nice screen by Besser, by the way, on that on that Kings goal. Um, that's where he needs to be shooting from. Like that, that's it. Like deeper in the zone and as far inside as you can get it. That's that's it. Well, that's what I was. It's all shot location at this point. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is it's going to be important for the Canucks to have enough legit threats shooting wise outside of Pedersen mm. for that lane to be consistently well, open. And and something something they have to be conscious of because the you know. Quinn Hughes is an incredible power play guy. And I still think that it's a feature, not a bug, that he doesn't take the lowest percentage shot <laughs> on a regular yeah. basis. The fact that he just is disciplined about moving the puck into high danger areas as opposed to wasting them on a 2% power play. But at the end of the day, that's a big point blast makes space. Yeah. Right? So they're not going to have that up top. And, and as such, you know, I think you're right. Having one of those interior shooters be someone who demands some attention is is going to be crucial. I don't think it's Beauvillier. I don't think it's Besser. I frankly don't even think it's Kuzmenko. Um, even if even, but of course it's not going to be if he's at the net front, right? That's yeah. <laughs> that, that guy's dangerous no matter who it is. Even though Kuzmenko might be one of the best in the league at it. Um, let's talk Hughes for a bit because I thought that Ducks game might have been his best of the year. I I, I I'm hard pressed. Like what the shot differentials were what thirteen one with him on the ice five on five, like the Ducks had no chance whenever Quinn Hughes was on the ice. This has been an, a theme of this Canucks season. You know, I increasingly think this Canucks team is two teams. Okay, they are the Canucks when Quinn Hughes is on the ice and they actually outscore and like profile kind of like a playoff team. But there's only about 33% of the time that he's on the ice five on five and they profile like that. And in the other times, they profile like one of the worst teams in the league. Like absolutely should have been in on the Bedard sweepstakes when Quinn Hughes sits. Um, that Ducks game was just a reminder of the way that Quinn Hughes can make the game his marionette, pull the seams and control the whole thing. It was a brilliant performance from the best defender in franchise history at this point. And lately watching him in the offensive zone, it's one thing to have the elusive skating, right? It's one mm. thing to be able to walk the walk the line the way he does. It's one thing to be able to button hook the way he does. What I'm seeing on a really consistent basis is his elite hockey sense in that I can see him thinking two or three steps ahead where right. it's like he might get the puck at the left point and immediately he's thinking if I walk the line this way or if I button hook this way and I dart across that way, I can try and hit a guy back door. Right, And it's funny watching it sometimes because if he's, let's say, playing with a bottom six line, th like those guys just like aren't able to think on the same wavelength, and they're sometimes not there. Who is? You know, there's only like three guys that are. That's why those Hughes-Petterson minutes are so fun, because those guys can think the game the same way. And that's why 
Travis Green, for example, is really disciplined about maximizing the time on ice that they shared. He They're, became disciplined about it. He wasn't right. He wasn't in that first season. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sorry, I just remember criticizing them for it. Yeah, no, <laughs> fair, fair. By the end of it, yeah. because of my recency bias, yeah, yeah, fair. they became a lot better at it. And I, I remember you would write, for example, about how with you'd look at all the teams in the NHL, number one center, number one D, their minutes together. Yeah, and the goal differential. And the goal differential. And the was, was elite that 2019-20 season. Now, this season it's been elite, but it hasn't been like as good as like Rope Hintz and Miro Hayes. Yeah. But it's still like they're, they're not number one, but they're still – those are minutes that the Canucks are flatly winning, right? And I do think if you're someone who wants to believe in the retool, that's kind of the, the question that you have to ask yourself. I, I was actually thinking about this. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this in the wake of that Kings game on Saturday, right? Because as our listeners will know, I was a big Kings booster going into last season. And then over the course of this year, I've actually been fading the Kings pretty significantly. Like one of my calls in midseason that's going to be wrong was I think the Kings will fall out and the Flames will take that last playoff spot. Like that was something that I, I expected to happen strongly. Now, you know, clearly the vibes... <laughs> difference was uh, was more decisive than I understood at the time. Um, the Kings will hold on. They've been one of the hottest teams in the league since the All-Star break. They will make the playoffs. They will probably be the second seed in the Pacific. But for all that the Kings control games, they just don't outscore their opponents. Like, they just don't have a bottom line that holds up in a way that reflects their, their structural soundness. Like, they're they're I often think about it as setting the table versus eating right like you need to be able like Jonathan Taves would set the table right but Patrick Kane could put it away it's like yeah. it's like that guy was having thirds right uh and then you get the rare players the really special players guys like the Sedin twins who could both set the table and Andy right uh Sidney Crosby the LA Kings are like a beautiful banquet hall set up perfectly with like enough forks that people are going to be like, which one do I use for the oyster course? And then the meal arrives and it's one of those fancy meals at a restaurant. That's like a little gelatinous square. And it's like, that's your, that's your cod. (laughs) And it's like, what? Right. And the Canucks are straight up like barbecue at a picnic bench. Right. (laughs) There's a, there's a lot of great food. They can put it away, but there's basically no structure, no table setting. Now, maybe that's changing under Rick Tockett, but the point remains. This is a team that when you've got Miller, Hughes, Pedersen, when you've got Demko, you can outperform structural flaws in your lineup. And, and I think one of our criticisms over the course of this run of lackadaisical hockey that we've seen from this group over the last three years has been, like, we know they can score. We know they can outperform their expected goals. We know they can, we, they can outperform their shot differential, but that's a hard way to live. You're going to be at the beck and call of things somewhat beyond your control, as we've seen this season with Demko getting hurt and Colin Dealey and Spencer Martin not being up to the task and, and on and on. The contrast between the two is fascinating because the Kings crush them in that game, control the entire thing, but the Canucks get the goals. The Canucks need far fewer opportunities than the Kings do to score. And, and over the long haul, because we know which ones worked better for this year, right? The Canucks are chasing structure. The Kings have it. But long-term, is it going to be easier for the Kings to graft high-end skill 
to really make their control of games stand up? Or is it going to be easier for the Canucks to raise the floor on their structural game? Because that, to me, is is the whole ballgame. Like, we don't know what the Flames are going to be. They're the ultimate wild card in the Pacific. We know Vegas is going to have a couple more years where they're better than the Canucks. I, th- I think we can say that with some level of confidence. The Kraken are, are you know, the Kraken, the Kings, the Canucks. That's kind of like... Those three are going to be – oh, Edmonton, too. We know they're going to have at least another couple of years where they're in a different weight class than Vancouver. But those three teams, it's like you have to beat at least two of them on an annual basis the next two years to make the playoffs with this group. Will LA's structural edge hold? Can they find the improvements that they need in terms of the finishing game, the elite skill, faster than the Canucks can build structure around their core? That, to me, is like the big question – of this retool and I I felt like it was on pure display on Saturday night yeah the other part of it too was I for tomorrow am working on a national piece looking at um, the best and worst first lines in Mm. in the NHL this season in terms of goal differential so when your first line is on the ice how many goals do you score how many how many do you allow what advantage do you essentially create now Pedersen's line was fourth in the NHL in goals four, right, in terms of what they generate offensively. Now, they were dinged because, in terms of the overall differential because of how much they allowed, but I think a lot a, of that's fair goal tending. NHL goal tending, but of also a fair bit's an overheated say, uh, shooting percentage, right? With Pedersen fair. on the ice, the Canucks are shooting 13%, right? And that's been consistent despite, like, if he's with Lane Peterson, they're scoring on 13% of their goals. When he's with Andre Kuzmenko, they're scoring on 13% of their goals. When he's with Ilya Mikheyev, 13% of their goals. Like, Pedersen's amazing, and he drives percentages, I think. But 13% is not going to last. Yes. Even in having sort of accounted for that, though, I think in the overall, they were still a High little end. bit above average, right? In terms oh, of the overall differential. Only a little bit above average. Yes, but here, here was the interesting thing. The only non-playoff teams ahead of them and there were only there were like directly like in the two slots ahead of Buffalo? them. Buffalo, Buffalo, and Florida, right? And Florida was only because of the Barkov and Kachuk minutes. Yeah. Otherwise, Bar- that that line has struggled. Yeah. But so you look at that and you go, okay, like Buffalo's a team that's like, and again, world's- Buffalo's a team that's a goalie away. Yeah. See, that's that's a, that, that to me is the Kraken too, right? Like, can the Kraken fix their goaltending? Can the Kings add Graft elite skill? Or can the Canucks build structure? And which of those three wins that race? That's going to determine whether or not this retool quote-unquote works from the perspective of the Canucks, like, hopping over the deliriously low bar of making the playoffs. Like, that's that's it. That's going to determine it. And and so I'm uh, how would you handicap it? Yeah, it's not e- easy. I mean, I think when you look at Buffalo, right, they at least have yeah. – they have so much cap space, right? Like that's that's a huge advantage. They're to have. flexible. Plus, they have a strong prospect pipeline to where they are already going to add more pieces and crucially cost certainty on all their most important players. Yeah. and they're and they're except, except the de- except the defenseman, right? Like Dolan yeah. and and Power are going to come up, but Cousins, Tage Thompson, lots of security. And even when you certainty. look at Cousins, Paterka. Uh, what's the what's the other winger they have? The rookie this year? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um sorry, name escapes me too. Keep going, we'll we'll get it. Uh so anyway, like those three Jack Quinn. Jack Quinn. 
so those three guys that they have, they're all like 20, right? Like they're not like, they haven't hit their peak yet. So they're only going to get better. So they have that level of internal improvement, even within the roster pieces that they already have. Whereas with the Canucks' top players, they, you know, they, they're already sort of, there's only so much more where Pedersen's playing at a superstar level. Hughes is playing at a legit number one D level, top 10 defender in the NHL level. Like you're, there's not another, another huge step for them to take. Whereas you could still right. have that with a team like Buffalo. Okay. But so, and, and that's another thing that we haven't often got, but we have got over the past three weeks and, and it's been enjoyable is Pedersen, Hughes and Demko all firing on all cylinders all at once. Right. It's like last season, Pedersen was kind of off. Um, kind of off. Pedersen was a uh, looked like the Monstars had sapped his power right before a game for about the first two and a half months of the season, and then by the time he really got going, Demko had kind of leveled off and then got hurt. Right, the year before, we know Pedersen only plays twenty one games. It's Hughes's worst two way season. Demko's just establishing himself as this team's starter, and then this year, Demko's hurt and you know sort of not himself. Quinn Hughes, the first six weeks of the season, I think he was well below his usual standard. And I think that caused us for too long to sleep on how historically good he's been for almost the entire campaign. Like from and remember, remember the start of the year, he was like lots of maintenance days. Yeah. He looked tired. Like he just didn't look like himself. And I I don't know exactly what was going on. He talked about playing through injuries, though. It's not like a secret that he was playing through some stuff. But from about mid-November to now. Quinn Hughes has been playing like a top five NHL defenseman. No, no question about it, right? No question about it. If he'd done this from the start and the team had had success, we'd be having a very, the league would be having a very different conversation around Hughes. It's just the injury sort of diminished it. But could that edge be found not by them hitting another level, but by them sustaining this level and just doing it at the same time for a season? You're right. We haven't seen that. And I think the closest example of that would be and it wasn't Demko in that case it was Markstrom but again that 2019-20 season yeah where you had Pedersen and Hughes cooking and you had elite goaltending yeah so that's the closest analogy plus from that point if you can I mean it's you, there's still a lot of work in terms of like we were talking about that right side back in the day do you remember in the oh, 1920 yeah. season we were like that's not good enough and that right side was Chris Tanev uh, Tyler Myers, when he was like before he had fallen off and was legitimately yep. playing well, and Troy Stetcher. He had a really good season that year, especially, I mean, not the whole way through, but the first two months he was great. And then he had like a bad month in December. And then he found like a, a good, hearty four or five level thereafter. Yeah. But it's like on the whole, he gave them three, four, like credible three, yeah. four contributions. Plus they had Edler. And we were still talking about, oh, that blue line's not good enough. So even with Hughes and Hronik, like, it's not as if the blue line is significantly better, but yeah, if if all if all three of those guys are firing, that's something special. Where even if you look at a lot of the teams that are trying to trying to build themselves back up, in terms of checking off the legit number one C, legit number one D, and an above average starter, like we won't even say like a top ten starter, a lot of them don't check that. Like no. Even Detroit, in walking through that exercise, they were like bottom five right? in terms of how their first line was. And obviously, Larkins had a fantastic year. That's mostly just Raymond having a sophomore slump and um, and Bertuzzi being hurt for most of the year, right? So it's like the lack of help. But 
Like that's they still don't like they need more elite talent too. Well, and Eiserman's telegraphed that, right? He's selling good parts of his team to get more lottery tickets because he knows he doesn't have it. He knows he doesn't have Pedersen. He knows he doesn't have a Hughes. Like he know well, he might have Cider, but uh, he doesn't have enough of those guys. You know that's why he got the lottery rules changed. That's why. He's selling Heronic for picks. Like, he's in the business of trying to find those stars. He knows none of it matters without them, right? Like, that's that's what he's trying to do. Um, here's my ranking really quickly, and I'll, I'll let you know. Uh, let, tell me if you disagree. I think the easiest thing to do is the Buffalo-Seattle thing. You need to find – you need to fix your goaltending. That's one position. It's not – you know, I don't want to say it's easy, yeah. but – you know, look at the way that Carolina churns through goalies every year. Look at how Toronto was like. Everyone else was paying for goalies. They were like, we will get a pick for Peter Mrazek, and then we will get that pick back to take on Matt Murray, and then we will sign a guy who didn't get qualified. And they'll yeah. they, and they're totally fine. Colorado cycles through goalies. Colorado Colorado paid what two thirds for a guy with a sub nine hundred career save percentage, and they're fine. They're like totally fine, and they're still going to be the best team in the West come playoff time. How about the Vegas Golden Knights? You lose Robin Leonard, and you're totally fine. Sure, I mean goalies. Goalies for me, goalies aren't easy, but you can you can figure it out. Number two, I think the the I think you're far. It's far easier to fix depth than it is to fee, fix the yeah. elite talent side, because Pedersen and Hughes don't come along easily. The problem being that in order to fix depth, you need cap space. You need cap space and you need young players coming, and the Canucks don't have that. So in the case of the Kings and the Canucks, I think the Kings will have an easier time as this like super attractive market in Los Angeles with you know a fair bit of cap flexibility and an embarrassment of riches on the right side of their defense core. Like the types of trade assets that can land you star players, I think they're gonna have an easier time finding one more stud who can who can eat as opposed to the Canucks finding the guys who can set the table. Hey, wanna tell you about the Canucks for Kids Fund Telethon, which will happen on March 21st when the Canucks host the Vegas Golden Knights. Donations can be made now, and everyone who donates before midnight on Tuesday will be entered to win a brand new 2023 Toyota Corolla Hybrid. Donations can be made online now at Canucks.com slash telethon. All right. We'll be back, segment two, with Harmon Dial coming up. We might get into the mailbag in segment four, but we've got Gemma Karsten-Smith on just after 1 p.m., so stick with us at Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Hello and welcome back to Canucks Talk. I'm Thomas Drance. Harmon Dial filling in for Jamie Dodd is my co-host and we are coming to you live from the Kin Tech studio and we're talking about a Vancouver Canucks team that has won eight of seven. Eight of seven. They've won eight of seven? What did I say? Yeah, it feels that way. Seven of eight. They've won seven of eight under Rick Tockett. They are one of the hottest teams in the league. At the worst possible time. Why is every season fated to be exactly the same? In terms of the bad start and then them coming on late? It's got to be organizational priority, right? Like, there's no way of looking at this and looking at their usage of Demko and looking at their usage of Hughes and concluding anything but 
that the Canucks have engineered this dead cat bounce, desperately are chasing it to try and tell a certain story about where this team is at, right? I think there's a compelling case for that because I think it was last week when I checked and this pro- I, I don't know if this is still true or, or where exactly things have shaken up, but I'd looked at the last 10 games that every team in the league had played. Quinn Hughes was number one in the league in average ice time per game. Mm-hmm. Elias Pettersson, among forwards, was number two behind only Connor McDavid. And JT Miller was number seven, only four seconds per game behind, I think, Nick Suzuki was fourth. Yeah. Like, this is a plan, right? Well, here's the thing, too. Like, even in it, when it comes to, say, like, the structure thing, or like, everything is geared towards hitting the ground running next season. Mm-hmm. Like, trying to show that this is the new version, right? Trying to show the market that, hey, we can we can fix it this time. It's for real this time. Believe us. And then, <laughs> and then, like, it's geared towards we need to hit the ground running next season. Yeah. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice. Fool me three times, can't be fooled again. Like, what, what are we talking about? Do you, are you buying this? Are you buying this? Is, are the Canucks fixed? I think there's a middle ground between nothing has materially changed and structure and coaching has fixed everything where this lands. Right. Which I know is the boring sort of I'm here for it. But that's, I think, what it is. Well, I think both things are true. Like, I think Rick Tockett's had a pretty sizable impact. Like, I would argue a bigger impact than Boudreaux had on their two-way game in his first, what, are we 22, 23 games at this point? But I don't think that means much for next season. You know, it would also be one thing if he was having that impact in the Canucks when he'd taken over were 12 points back of a playoff spot. Not like absolutely dead in the water toward the bottom of the league, 30 points back or 25 points back or whatever it was. Right? Like, it would be one thing if it was you're at least – this at least has some meaning. You're at least going to get yourself to a point where you have like a one in three shot. But they're not even going to get close to that. They're not even going to get close to... They'd probably have to win their next seven to get to a point where they had a 1-100 in 100 shot. Yeah. I also think that the schedule component is really important. Because, look, yes, the Canucks have beaten some good teams under Socket here. But the circumstances under which they've beaten them a lot of times... Like, when you look at the Stars, right? The Stars, it was their third game in four nights. When, when they beat the Leafs, it was their third game in four nights. Yep. Lots of back-to-backs, lots of backup goalies. Yeah, and, and so you, even you look at when they did play good competition, like they lost to the Rangers they twice. Um, they beat the Isles, which, which was positive, but then they also lost to the Devils on the earlier sort of um, just after they had traded to Horvat road yeah, trip. and got stomped. Yeah, so like they still, and they and they lost to the Red Wings twice. So it's like, and, and Boston as well. So, so to me... Yes, there was another game against Dallas, which they beat, which kudos to them. So that's at least uh, a positive. But especially in the wake of that L.A. game, yes, I'm 100% believing that there's legitimate steps that this team is taking, like how in terms of their structure under Tockett, especially their how, how much more connected they are on the breakout, the level of effort and engagement we're seeing from, from the forwards from a two-way perspective. Those are all sort of real. Those aren't just a mirage. But I'm still not sure what it'll look like next season against 
some of the like when you're when you're playing better teams on a more consistent basis because you look at the way that for example like like let's take something like they're looking so much better breaking the puck out Mm -hmm. right for example in the dallas game in the third period you're like wow they're using the center pocket they've got guys all connected together whereas before for years it was like defenseman behind his net forwards all the way at the red line punt and hunt baby right and so like that's not obviously a way to excel breaking out not durably not durably and so we saw it work like we've seen it it perform well but it was like in that Dallas game, for example, it's like that was against a tired team that was probably half a step like behind in terms of them not being at their best for checking wise. And then we saw it against LA, right? And the Kings, they're such a fast athletic team in terms of their size, their speed. Now credit to the Canucks because they like they still like their forwards are still back trying to be in the right positions. The problem is just the Kings were already on top of them. That they, the defenseman didn't have a chance to make a play. Mm. Even against Arizona, and I don't know if they had done some like pre-scouting to where they watched the way that the Canucks were breaking out against the Stars and tried to sort of adjust. But one thing I noticed against the Coyotes was Arizona's forecheck seemed to recognize that the Canucks were starting to use the middle of the ice a bit more often, like with the center coming deep and... It's like when, when the D is under pressure, he'll just slip it into the middle. And that had worked so well against Dallas. But Arizona seemed to like always have a guy to try and take away that option. And the Canucks sort of sometimes struggle to, to adjust to that. And even in those instances, even in other instances, when they had guys in the right positions providing the support, it's like they weren't executing the quick plays that you mm. need to actually make it work. Which is why, like, for example, fixing the breakout isn't just as simple as saying, have guys close to You be to here, jump. you be here. Yeah. yeah, like, you need guys, you need wingers that can win battles. You need defensemen who can, defensemen forwards who can make quick plays under pressure, and you need those passes to be precise. Otherwise, like, you're, gonna, you're still going to have problems. Well, and sometimes, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to beat a four-checker, right? Quinn Hughes can do it with his feet. He can do it with a deke. He can do it with a spin. Right, but Chris Tanev was one of the best I've ever seen at this. He did it by being willing to just eat contact. <laughs> like, yeah, like you, you might blow him up, but he was making the play, and it was always going to be a good one. Right? There's, there's all, all kinds of different ways to go about it, but you need D who can do it. I think that's one thing that fans have recognized, even if they're not thinking about it as, as technically as you just laid it out about Christian Willannon. Like, Christian yeah. Willannon can make that play. Oh, yeah. Every time out. He's a really smart passer. Um, and I think that's given him the ability to, like, level up this Canucks defensive group because for much of the season, like, I don't think Tyler Myers has been reliably making that play. I don't think Oliver ekman Larson has been reliably making that play. Uh, I don't think Riley Stillman or Luke Shen were reliably making that play. But you put Christian Willannon in, and it's like, okay, you've got a guy who plays not with Quinn Hughes – who can get that going? He, I I think Kyle Burrows can too, right? Like I think that's a big part of what we've seen. Why we've seen this defensive group be more than the sum of their parts is you've got a few guys who can make that play. Well, Anna is my favorite out of the AHL guys that were called up between him, Juleson, and Breezebaugh. by a lot, by a lot. Yeah, I, although although 
I've got time for all three. I've been I do, yeah. I like I go, do not do not go spend a ton on now that you've overspent on Philip Ronick, do not go spend a ton on additional defenders because like you're going to go bring in a Tucker Pullman and it's going to be like no Juleson might be better anyway. Yeah, at least in terms of like the five, six, seven profile type guys. Yeah. But yeah, in terms of like Wolanin. No, but a lot of the time you go hunting for the guy yeah. who's a who's a first or second, you know, like they didn't sign Pullman or Hamannick to be four, five, six or five, right. six, seven guys, but they're five, six, seven guys. Right. <laughs> you know, like you can't get fooled if you don't play. You can't get fooled at a mugs game if you don't play. Yeah, that's that's I think a really important point because Pullman at that point was playing shutdown minutes with Morrissey. Right. Wasn't working well at all, at all in Winnipeg, which is why a team so bereft of blue line talent let him walk in the first place. Yes. Which should have been your first sort of alarm bells, which is like, hold on, wait a second. Winnipeg's blue line oh. sucks. Don't if don't they're get letting me this guy go, go. Don't get me started on gift horses in the mouth. Yeah. Why is Stevie Y willing to trade a cost controlled twenty five year old defenseman? That's that's a question that should be like red alert, red alert, everyone to the command center. Like, oh man, that makes me very nervous. But yeah, it's like that means if you're looking to acquire help on the blue line, it like you need to be sure it's a material upgrade. You need to be sure it's a legit top four guy. Oh yeah, a legit top four difference maker, like yeah. a driver. Um, no, it's uh, well, and they're they're not easy to find, right? Obviously. And we, as we've seen, they cost a pretty penny to acquire on the trade market. So the there's parts of the Canucks game under Tocket that we like. One thing that I need to see, though, is like, you know, one of the reasons that I've been fading this team, like probably the biggest reason has been my this defense is incompatible with the act of winning in the contemporary NHL line, right? Like that was my fundamental analysis in the wake of the Oliver Ekman Larson trade was like, this D can't move the puck. And I, I don't think it's going to work. And I think that take aged really well for two years. Now the last two and a half weeks, we've seen like, okay, you get Christian Willannon in, <laughs> um, you know, surely what we've seen Willannon and company accomplish is a bull case for the impact that Philip Peronic can have, right? Surely. So if they fix that issue or at least get to the point where it's like, we're only just below average moving the puck as opposed to one of the worst teams in the league, which they have been. Do you believe that this group of players can really congeal and be the sort of group that's like outworking their opponents in game 58? You know, 58-59. Because that's one thing... When I think about when I think about what we've seen over the last three years, right? And it's like we lost all our all, all we lost our heart and soul guys in twenty twenty one and there's a lot of finger pointing and organizational noise and criticism from within the room about communication and uh, excuses get made, performances are bad, right? The very next year, they tune out the coach, right? It's, oh, if only they'd had a better coach. And then this year, it's, if only they didn't have AHL goaltending. And you can see, like, you know, the people debated Miller when he smacked the stick on, on the on Colin Delia's net, right? It became a big referendum on Miller. But I always saw it and always thought of it as more a reflection of the level of frustration that players had with goaltending, generally, right? Like, we're, we're not getting saves. 
And now that's it. Like, well, what, what do you expect? They first of all, they had this unstructured coach who 12 months ago was the savior, and and two, AHL goaltending. What what you know? But we've kept giving them excuses, and it's like, look at the Kings. They've had to like redesign their goaltending in midstream because Cal Peterson nor Jonathan Quick could make a single save. Like the Vegas Golden Knights lost their starter to injury and and only after the market settled and they had no cap space to address it and they're fine. You know, like other teams figure out how to win. The Toronto Maple Leafs had the worst goaltending in the league for five months last season and were a 115-point team in the hardest division in hockey. Like other teams figure this stuff out. Other teams find ways to win when their goaltending bottoms out. You know, maybe they don't win forever, but they're not like out of the race because they've lost – you know, they've won five regulation games in two and a half months, which this team did. Do you buy that this core group is more than the sum of their excuses accumulated over three years? Well, bottom line, the goaltending needs to be there. I don't think that this group can make the playoffs next season if the goaltending is what it's been like for most of the season. But I think based off of Demko's form, him him performing the way he has coming, coming back, which I think is an important sign to see if you're planning to contend for a playoff spot next season, you should be reasonably confident that he can bounce back and that you will get that goaltending. But it's still a goal. It's still goaltending. It's volatile. Players get hurt. This team's not going to have money to spend on a backup. Like if you're looking at a Demko Martin, uh, c coming up in the event of injury battery, are you really like how how confident are you that you get above average team save percentage? Like you're you're probably not a team that should be counting on getting an elite team save percentage over the course of 82 games. Yes, we're probably looking at it as a team we'd expect and and the best laid plans in terms of predicting team save percentage. Um, you know, are are for fools, but like I don't look at that and say that's an, a team with like for sure lock it up. They're going to have a goaltending edge. They have a player capable of delivering it with with thin depth. It's a knife's edge, man. You're right. However, two things. I th- I think if the rest of the roster is strong enough, you can get away with like, with a goaltending situation where it's above average as opposed to elite. Oh, for sure. I yeah. think you can get. I think you can get by with worse than that. If, right. If you're really good, I just don't. I. Like, you see what I'm saying? It's like you add up all these, if this, then that. If this, then that. If this, then that. And at some point, you get to a point where there's too many ifs. You know, if Pedersen, Hughes, and Demko are all at their best. If Demko stays healthy and is elite, right? Um, If we can find league average backup goaltending for 20 games from a 21-year-old and Spencer Martin, who seems to have lost all confidence, although nice bounce-back game for him this weekend in Abbotsford, uh, getting a shutout. Love to see it. Uh, rooting for him to get his game back on track. Um, you know, like, if we can fix the penalty kill, right? If we can find two more defensemen <laughs> who can move the puck. And, and at what point is it hope, not strategy? Like, I think you're trend, you're trending perilously close if your goal, in my view anyway, is like we're going to make a 25-point improvement next season on the back of all of these ifs. True. With the goaltending point, let me ask you this. How much of the goalies blowing a flat tire out of the gate 
do you think was the Canucks' defensive form being a lot. absolutely disastrous a lot. A with lot. those backdoor seams? I legitimately think the goaltending storyline has been well overplayed because I've very rarely seen a team give up chances of the quality that the Canucks did. Right. So that's where I think you'd... For this to work, you'd have to buy that the that under it the way that they're playing with more structure that that would at least have to hold. Right. And, well, and I buy that it holds to some extent, but I still don't know if it holds to such an extent that they're going to be able to get the, you know, 15 points in the 25 games that Demko doesn't play next year that you're going to need to make the playoffs. Potentially. I think they're also... Like one of the advantages for the Canucks that I think really matters, one of the re- one of the rare instances where they have some luck on their side, is how bad their division is. Like they're not. Like, it is ima- bad this year. It is. But so it's an interesting one because we need to see how things play out this off season. But you're right. Yes, the Pacific has been abysmal this year, and yet. I still think there's a pretty big gulf between them, Vegas, and Edmonton. Yeah. I think there's a talent gulf between them and the Flames, but the Flames are going to need to fix their coaching situation. I still Have I ever given you this take? I believe that if the Calgary Flames hired Bruce Boudreau tomorrow, they'd make the playoffs. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, that's... They they just need good vibes. It's the perfect situation, right? Like, there's, like, all this Sutter structure, but you bring in the good times... That team would go that I don't they would never lose again in the regular season. But no, actually, you know what? There'd be too much Canuck um too much Canuck um energy. Like too, there But none of like, those Canucks intersected forms. with Boudreaux. But there's too many ingredients. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. If you want to win games in March and April. <laughs> you want as much Canucks DNA on your side as you can get. <laughs> True. The Vancouver Canucks, March Madness champions, eight years running. <laughs> That's Me- a good point. Meaningful games in March has been such a curse to this city. <laughs> the enthusiasm of this franchise. Like, someone tell them that the playoffs start in in late April. Someone, please. This ain't it. Or <laughs> I think they just don't start on time. They just don't start the season like they're just a couple. They're a couple months behind. They're a couple months behind and a couple months ahead of the playoffs in their approach. To you the know season. what? It's just you know when COVID hit and you had the league league. Um, yeah, sure, they never calendar. adjusted back to it. Right. Okay. That's that's what it is. It's that. It's It'll the fix hangover. next season. Yeah. But it. I mean, it delivered some fun times in that bubble in 2020. So look, I'm obsessed with the Pacific Division because I agree with you. I think it is soft, but I also think. That the Kraken are a goalie away and Maddie Beneers leveling up from being like a problem for a few years here. That's what okay, like I've I've been trying to wrap my head around what exactly Seattle is because th- they're such a deep team, but they're also they've been riding like for a long time. Outrageous hottest, percentages. Yeah, the hottest shooting percentage in the league. And and I think there's part of that that's unsustainable. And also like look at the guys that they've brought in. Look at who they've specifically targeted. And there's a and there's a pretty common profile, right? Like even even guys like Tolvanen and Sprong 
right? Like, you think the Canucks, remember when the Canucks had, like, Godette Vertanen, we talk a lot about how they had, like, a one-shot scorer on every line? The Kraken have two. They've, like, gone out and found and bet on guys who can, like, just shoot, just finish. So you've got Tolvanen, you've got Sprung, you've got Burakovsky, you've got Bjorkstrand, you've got McCann, and on and on. And you end up with, I think, a team that's, like, really, like, they don't have a Pedersen-style finisher or a Dreisaitl-style finisher on their roster, but they have a lot of guys in that, like, next tier down. I think that's, like, at least part of the story here. Yeah. The overall, what's fascinating for me with the Kraken is this idea of can you be a sustainable, sustainably good year, good team year in, year out when you don't have like star power. Right. Which is where the Matty Beneers leveling yeah. up thing, like that to me is the key for them. Also, their top pair, I was looking because last week I'd gone through the results. Adam Dunn and Larson, Larson were uh, outrageous, outrageously good, which I'm know. like, Dunn. Is that real? <laughs> Dunn was available to the Canucks for the pick uh, that they gave for Jason Dickinson ahead of the expansion draft in the organization. Didn't have interest, yeah. Wow. I know. It's brutal. He's playing as a legit number one D this it's, year. It, like, it, up, there on, up there on McCann before Pasternak, Yolevi before Kachuk. Like, if you go look at the guys immediately ahead of Pedersen right now in scoring, and it's like just a who's who of guys who should have been Canucks, Pasternak for... Kachuk five, and I guess you could cl- include Jason Robertson taking six picks after Cole Lind, but that one's not as not as compelling as the other two. Anyway, whatever. Canucks luck. We know what it is. That's why we're Canucks talk, which you're listening to on Sportsnet 650. We'll be back with Gemma Karsten Smith for segment three. Once again, Sportsnet. Welcome back to Canucks Talk. I'm your host, Thomas Drance, joined today by Harmon Dial filling in. Of course, Canucks Talk is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team. Visit avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com for more. And we are coming to you, of course, as always, from the Kin Tech Studio. We'll get to Off the Wire shortly with Gemma Karsten-Smith, breaking down the notable Canucks clips from this past week and what it all means. But yeah, the main thing that we've been discussing is is the Pacific. And we'll get to that in the third. I also want to invite anybody who'd like to to text in 650-650. That's the Dunbar Lumber text line. We're going to do a mailbag in the fourth segment. We're going to we're going to bring in producer Laura, oh, producer Lena, excuse me, to um, pick through the best responses. We want it Pacific Division themed. For next year, like long outlook Pacific Division. Give us your takes and your thoughts, and we'll get to it in a fourth segment mailbag. But first, Gemma Karsten Smith joining us this week as she always does. Gemma, how are you doing? I'm I'm all right. How are you guys? How are you, Harm? I'm great. <laughs> how are you? Good. Nice to talk to you on the radio. Seriously. We'll do the press box thing, but uh, but for a live audience. So, Gemma, Gemma, we're starting with a Rick Talk clip today. What uh, Set it up for us. What's interesting to you about this clip before we get to it? Yeah, so I want to start off today by uh, chatting a little bit about what um, 
the Canucks did last week over Dallas. I know that seems like a real long time ago, probably because it was. <laughs> um, and just like things happen with this team every day, you know. Anyway, they're the Canucks. The thing, <laughs> it's the Canucks. There's never nothing to talk about. But the thing that struck me about that game <laughs> against Dallas is how many guys who've been toiling in the minors this season really like kind of stepped up and made their presence known. Um, here's Talkett speaking about the impact that some of those AHL guys have had on the big club in recent weeks. You know, I got affection with those guys. Those guys are trying to make the NHL, right? And uh, they've bought in right away. You know, they're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Uh, but the next next shift or the next practice, they pick themselves up. I love that about them. So affection is a, is a pretty interesting word selection there, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, it is interesting. I mean, it's it's been interesting to see the way that he has utilized some of these guys and some of them on a very necessary basis. I mean, um, there have been injuries that have necessitated some of these moves, but it's, you're right. Affection is a, is an interesting word. Uh, it seems to me from what we've seen of talk it so far is that he likes those guys who are going to grind and get greasy a little bit and, and kind of play with that, um, that hard nosed edge, um, which is, not always what Vancouver is known for. Um, but I think you tend to see that with guys coming up from the AHL because they have something to prove, right? So I think that that's what he means in terms of um, having affection for those guys because they're guys who are going to work their butts off to try and stick in this lineup. Also, it's hard not to have affection for the way that this defense core is playing as a group relative to some of what we've seen all year how surprised are you by how much better the overall body of work looks like right now given all of the bigger name defenders who've been subtracted from this defense core over the past few weeks yeah I think um surprise might not be the best word to use I can't really think of a better one though so we'll go with surprise um uh it's it's very interesting considering the payroll that is not playing right now. Um, we've been calling, we've been saying since last off season that this um, blue line needed significant change. Did not think that changing it from the AHL would, would yield results, but look, here we are. Surprise. Gemma, with some of those AHL sort of call-ups that includes Willannon, that includes, um, Juleson, Breezebois, each of them brings something different to the table. They're not the same type of player stylistically in terms of what they bring. Who's impressed you the most, and who do you think could be the best fit in terms of providing NHL value for next season? For sure. I think I think Willannon has impressed me. Um, I think that his age could be a concern, and I think that there's no... Um, not a ton of room for growth. I think he's he is what he is at this point of his career. But I I, I also think that he's worked really well in this lineup. Um, he's uh, he moves the puck well. He's he's got a little bit of that grit that um, Talkett likes, and he's just a better defender than we've seen um, some of the other guys who've, uh, who've who've taken those spots on the blue line. So that Willannon would be my choice. We're going to stick into the depth D topic with our next clip, Gemma. It's, it's Guillaume Brisebois who scored his first career goal, becoming 
the Canucks draft pick, uh, this research per Rob Williams, the Canucks draft pick to finally score his first NHL goal, the longest after he's been drafted in franchise history. An amazing testament to resilience. Uh, what stuck out to you in this Brisebois clip? It was honestly hard to tell who was happier about him scoring that goal, him or his teammates, because they were just, <laughs> it was so sweet. I like, love these stories. Not- I know. it's. We haven't had a lot of like heartwarming stories with the Canucks this season, so I just wanted to touch on this one because it's been really nice. <laughs> uh, he, yeah, was tech, he's the longest tenured Canuck. Like, how crazy is that? He's only played, what, like 25 uh, NHL games now or something like that? But he's he's been with this club the longest. He had drafted ages and ages ago. Um, Harm was probably still, like, in the womb or something. Um, <laughs> and it's obviously he's got a lot of guys uh, pulling from him in that locker room. So let's listen to what this stretch of NHL action has meant to the defenseman. I'm really happy about it, but I'm not satisfied with it. Um, I think I, I have to, to build on that, and I think that's going to build a little bit of confidence, but I still got to play really hard and, and prove myself every day. We'll get the uh, old Grinch x-ray machine out on my heart as it grows three sizes, Gemma. Um, you don't make it in one organization through as much change and upheaval as Brisebois has with the Canucks organization, unless you're pretty much the best. Like, you have to be the best guy to stick around uh, and have this many different managers and coaches all vouch for you and have comfort playing you uh, as a depth guy. Um, Does that stand out to you, too, from this clip? Absolutely. Absolutely. He knows what this means, right? Uh, He knows that uh, this stretch this is this is by far as long a stretch of nhl games and sticking in um big league he knows that he has to prove himself here not because he thinks he's going to be here forever but because he has to show that it's paid off all of that belief has paid off and like he said like he's he's been great at the ahl level it's a different level though right so for him to be able to show that he has there's room for him to make contributions here is huge. So it's a, it's been interesting. Um, it's been good to see. I know he was uh, not in the lineup all weekend for all three games this weekend, but he's, uh, he's definitely shown that he's got uh, some upside and they deserve that new contract. Gemma, one of the other fascinating things about any sort of, team whether it's in hockey basketball any professional sport is that inevitably some players are going to get less opportunity than than others right that you know some players are going to sit some players aren't aren't going to get the ice time that they want and um like that obviously creates internal competition that uh that can be tough on players right how like we we just spoke about or you just spoke about how Brisebois' character has sort of shone through how important do you think it is for teams when they're filling out their depth spots to have players with that type of character who won't sulk when they're in a spot where it's like in and out of the lineup. Um, When they finally do get into the lineup, maybe it's after sitting in the press box for a long time. Uh, How much helpful do you think that is even for the, for the team's chemistry to have depth players um, who won't sulk and, and have that positive character? I believe the word you're looking for is crucial. Um, you need that. You absolutely need that. If you don't have that, it's just going to turn into locker room cancer, right? Um, especially when you have a lineup 
like the Canucks do, where there are some real albatross contracts on the blue line. You can't always send those guys down to the minors, right? It's just like it, it doesn't make any sense to send OEL down to the minors. It, it like it, it it's not that you're burying money at that point, right? So um, to have guys that, that get it and are going to just kind of keep working hard and keep toiling and keep trying their very best is absolutely crucial, I think. Gemma, one of the other defenders who's made a surprising impact on the back end, uh, Noah Juleson. Um, your next clip is from that young gentleman. Um, what stood out to you about his commentary? Uh, a variation on our theme, our very depth defense <laughs> heavy off the wire segment today. Dresser, you know that I love a team. Um, so <laughs> we'll, do, we'll do one more from Abbotsford Boys, and then we'll move on, I promise. Yeah, uh, here's Jolson talking about what exactly Jeremy Colleton is doing mm. with that AHL club that makes it easy for players to sign, slide into the lineup when they do, in fact, get called up to Vancouver. Yeah, you know, Jeremy's been uh, great for us down in Abbey. Um, you know, obviously his, his attention to detail has, has helped us a lot, and I think the D zone and, and just making plays and being smart and simple and working for each other to have success as a group has been a big thing for us. So, Gemma, the AHL has sort of been like the standout thing that's gone smoothly for <clears throat> new Canucks management in a year when almost nothing else has, right? I mean, there's been very little drama uh, very little for us to cover as as a as a big story or a big concern. It feels like it's just been smoothly run, functional, successful. Um, is that is that your sense of it too? Like, isn't it kind of amazing how quiet it's been around the Abbotsford Canucks relative to how this season has been everywhere else for this organization? In such a tumultuous season for the Canucks, Abbotsford has been steady. It's been a little oasis of calm. I'm sh and I, I'm really, really, really interested to see what happens with Colleton because I, we all know that being head coach of an AHL club was not his first choice, but he's done good work there this year, right? And I don't know whether that translates into another NHL head coaching job right away, but it's definitely something to watch because, like you said, it's been, uh, it's been successful. It's been... Um, not dramatic it's been he's done a lot of good things and it has not gone unnoticed he's played the kids right the of the depth guys have come up and looks like they've leveled up um guys like Niels Hoaglander have gone down and settled in and, and had tremendous success agents are happy I mean what's going on what's going on yeah. why is Abbotsford I so calm right now well, that's it. Should we should we start a controversy about it? Like, is this something that we need to go investigate and oh, do some deep, deep digging? I'm totally kidding. I, I, I can I'm do it if I need to. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> There's not enough drama up with the big club. No. Yeah, that's. <laughs> but no, it's 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 been good to see, right? Like, it's it's been exactly what you want your AHL club to be as a kind of a. Um, it's been somewhere where prospects and, and young players can go and work on their game. And then when they come back up, they look better, right? Like, is there, it, we haven't heard from a single guy who's been down in Abbotsford this season, like, oh, that was, that time really sucked. They've, they've all said great things about uh, the club, about their teammates, and about Colleton. So 
I, I think it's been, um, like you said, uh, a little, a little island of of success in a uh, in a very strange season for the Canucks. Long term, how beneficial do you think that could be to the Canucks? Because for a long time, with the last administra- administration. Utica was sort of a dead spot in terms of they weren't able to develop prospects, obviously bringing them now to Abbotsford, having closer proximity. You know, Steens are able to work with them. They've invested in player development. Obviously, this is only year one or two of them sort of investing heavily in in the minor league system. How, like, what kind of rewards could the organization be able to reap over the long run? Yeah, for sure. I think that Utica always seemed like an afterthought, whereas there seems to be some real, like you said, they, they've invested in development. They've, they're, they're having the students. Apparently, the students, students go to like almost every practice uh, in Abbotsford. They're, they're there constantly. There's, they're really investing in Abbotsford, and I think that's huge. That's investing in the future of your club, and that's not just investing in prospects. That's investing in the depth of your team because we saw this season, and we're seeing right this moment how many guys are getting called up from the NHL to, to slide into the lineup, and if they can do that seamlessly, that's a big difference between um, winning and losing, right? So – I think it's it's huge, and to treat your treat your minor minor leaguers like um, a like they pride of place in your organization instead of as an afterthought, like oh right, I forgot about those guys. Um, I I think that's a huge showing from the team as a whole that the bigger picture matters. It's not being myopic, and um, I think that's something that we've seen so much from this team over the years, and even this season. So to see a bit of a bigger picture um, embraced is reassuring. Let's see if it uh, continues going forward. Okay, ready? I said I'd accept the challenge. Here you go. In contrast with so many of the other areas where there's been controversy generated, you think about the new medical staff and the Tanner Pearson story or the Mm. the new hockey operations group and and on and on. Uh, Abbotsford's being run by Ryan Johnson, who's basically mm-hmm. the only source of continuity that this hockey ops group has had outside of Stan Smeal uh, from one season to the next. Does this show to some extent that continuity kind of matters in terms of functioning placidly as an organization? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I have no argument there. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> I, I, I cannot push back because you're just right. All right, let's go to your last clip. I believe this is from a a certain superstar suddenly hot on the power play, Elias Patterson. Yeah, I've heard of him. Um, (laughs) He is good, yes. (laughs) Petey, good at hockey. Uh, Yeah, bit of a tangent here, but just stick with me, okay? I wanted to talk about how Quinn Hughes has been playing lately. Um, Now, he didn't get put out after the game last night, and... Obviously, none of us are on the road. So we're going to go to talk about him via PD. So um, Pedersen's talking here about how Hughes continues to elevate his game. Um, last night, Hughes put up two more assists in that win over the Ducks. And he now sits at 60 helpers for the season, for the second season in a row. He's the first defenseman in the league to accomplish that since Roy Bork and Paul Coffey did it 29 years ago. 29 years. 
harm wasn't even like thought of at that point. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So let's talk to let's hear from uh, Patterson talking about Hughes and uh, how he's been playing so far. Uh, his number shows it, but uh, he has made plays all over the ice. Um, and then, I mean, this year he's been taking more of a, um, I don't say leadership role, but just like being more, uh, he's just been playing a lot better, playing a lot on PK, and uh, yeah, he he's good for us. Why do you think he was reluctant to say leadership role? I, I don't think, I, I think that was more of, he wanted to talk about how his game has grown, not how he's grown as a person. Mm. If that makes sense, he was he was looking for the right word, and leadership was what came to mind, and he couldn't think of of the other word. I'm not sure what the other word was, but I think that that's what that was more than. We know that he's taken on a bigger leadership role, especially under Target. Yeah, he wears the A now, but we keep hearing about how he's talking more in, in the room. We're we're seeing him talking to us a little bit more. Um, not always like the most elaborate answers i would say but uh he he he's, he's taking it on right so uh it's been interesting to see how hughes has grown this year and i would argue that it's not just on the ice it is uh in a leadership role as well right so leading on the ice is that sort of like he's leading with his play do you think maybe that's the idea that pd was getting at Yes, I do think that's what he's getting at. And, I mean, like, he, he is. Hughes is fourth in the league in points by a defenseman right now. He's second in assists behind only Eric Carlson. Second in assists by defenseman, I mean. Um, and Eric Carlson is, has decided that he's 25 games for some reason. So, um, yeah, it's the season that Hughes is having is massive. And he has still got room to grow. We, we've heard from him about how he works so much on his shot this offseason. Um, he's only got five goals. I think that that is really and truly eating at him. I think he expected and uh, very much wanted to be in double digits in terms of goals this season. Um, I mean, there's still games left, so he could go on a heater. But uh, it's it's pretty incredible to see how his game has grown um, in terms of being just more responsible defensively as well. Uh, I know a couple of years ago it really bothered him that he was I can't remember what it was. It was dash like four or whatever. Um, and it, he went away and worked on that. Uh, and now he's, he's been a lot better defensively. Now he's uh, wants to work on his defensive game. We saw him go away and work on his shot. It hasn't translated into goals yet, but he's getting a heck of a lot of assists and, uh, and you can see him be a real threat out there. So uh, I'm intrigued to see where it goes moving forward. Are you surprised by the lack of national chatter around the performances of, of Hughes and Pedersen in particular this season, or is it simply a product of a lack of team success? I think it is definitely a lack of team success. It's also that we're not the center of the world, Trent. Come on. Like, um, this is not Toronto. But, yeah, it, it, it's surprising, no. But I think if this team were winning games, they would be talked about in – in a lot more conversations in terms of uh, end-of-season awards. As it stands, I, I doubt that they'll get much in terms of love for um, a Norris vote or a Hart vote or any of that stuff. I, I just think that without wins, it's hard for um, the people who, the fine folks who vote for those awards to, to look too hard at the Canucks and to really dig into those numbers. 
It makes sense, but uh, yeah, it's. I think it's a product of the fact that they've had a pretty garbage season overall, and um, because the Canucks are the Canucks, um, people in Toronto don't want to stay up past midnight to finish watching the game. <laughs> I, I <laughs> Neither tend, do I. I tend to get an awards vote, although we've been uh, very thoughtful about limiting, um, you know, some of the larger chapters so that they don't have an outsized influence on outcomes. So I don't know if I'll have an awards vote, but personally, I think I'd find it pretty hard to find a top five spot in in my heart ballot for for Patterson. I think Hughes would be closer in terms of the Norris. To be totally honest with you, it's just yeah. You know, you have McDavid who's going to win, and then you have Jack yeah. Hughes, and then you have just so many other incredible performances this season, including guys like Matthew Kachuk, who's not even playing yeah. for a playoff team, who would be on my ballot ahead of Pedersen, I think. Yeah, I, I I voted last year for the first time, and um, it's I think that people assume uh, the folks who vote for these awards do it really like kind of top of mind we all dig in really hard because we take it very seriously oh, and yeah. uh and and that's good but you're right like there's just so many elite incredible players in this league that it's hard to find spot for Pedersen in the top five yeah he's been he's had this incredible season but it's on a team that's still pretty garbage and so if you're the MVP of a garbage team are you better than Matthew Kachuk I I I have a hard time um, making that argument, you know? Um, so yeah, I, the Norris, the Norris is hard because it really should be two different awards. It should be one for an offensive defenseman and one for a defensive defenseman, but I don't make the rules. I just try and follow them. (laughs) Well, thanks Gemma. We appreciate you not breaking the rules on another (laughs) fantastic segment of from the wire. Thank you. Thank you so much, Harm. I'm sorry that I made fun of you being young so much. <laughs> no, it's great. I love it. <laughs> Have a great day, guys. Cheers. I actually uh, looked it up. Yeah. I was 15 years old when Guillaume Brisbois was drafted. 15. Wow. So two, you're only two years younger than him? Three. Uh, more or less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Math, one of my strong suits. Hey, we'll talk about... Guillaume Brisbois, we'll talk about Harmon's age, and we'll talk about the Canucks and their perch in the Pacific Division. Get your texts in. Open mailbag segment coming up on the other side of the break. 650-650. That's your Dunbar Lumber text line to get in your questions for Harmon and I. We'll catch you on the other side of the break on Sportsnet 650. Everything Canucks before and after the games. Canucks Central with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Canucks Talk. I'm your host, Thomas Drance, joined filling in by Harmon Dial. Uh, Jamie Dodd will be back on Friday. Until then, me and Harmon will be holding things down, except on Wednesday when I'm going to do a guest-heavy show solo. So you know which one to skip. <laughs> Canucks, uh, Canucks Talk is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team. Visit avenuemachinery.ca, douglasequipment.com for more intel. Intel, And, of course, we are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. We're going to open up the mailbag. I'm going to bring in producer Lena here. 
Um, 650-650, that's the Dunbar Lumber text line if you'd like to get a late submission in for Lena's consideration. Lena, what do we have in the inbox so far? Uh, First of all, what's up, guys? Hey, Lena, how are you? (laughs) I had to put in the what's up because without Jamie, um, there is no what's up. This is Canucks talk, so Uh, I I had to make up for it. I I was very grateful for it up until about 30 seconds ago, (laughs) Lena. (laughs) Um, All right. So do we want to go specifically into Canucks? Because there are a couple of questions going league-wide. So I don't know if you want to start league-wide or go into Canucks. Let's start Canucks, but let's not fade the league-wide questions. I'm I'm interested to discuss those as well. Okay. Um, Arden from Vancouver texted in saying, I really hope you take this text. Curious if you think the Canucks have the highest probability to trade for first overall at the draft. I'm of mind that they do. What would it take? Probably our top 10 pick plus Miller to start. What could you see transpiring in that situation? I I don't think anyone's trading the first overall pick if they get it. I literally think it is a priceless asset based on the fact, like, did you see the guy hit 70 last night? Yeah. He had 62 goals with five games remaining. Now, the the all-time record for a 17-year-old in the WHL in goal scoring is... Do you know who it is? In the in WHL? Yeah. No. It's the immortal Pavel Brendel from in 1998-1999 wow. with the Calgary Hitmen. He scored 73 across 68 games in his draft-eligible position or his first draft-eligible season and, of course, was the uh, top five pick um now people will hear that and be like oh well so what about 70 but brendel's like an all-time miss right like it's wild to think that this guy didn't end up being a star in the nhl given his production bedard is materially different right if you score 73 as a 17 year old and you're not number one overall with a bullet there's a reason for it and obviously those reasons overwhelm brendel and in what turned out to be um a relatively weak draft class i mean aside from the the two twins who went number two and number three there wasn't a lot of elite talent at the top of that particular class now bedard is the first guy since brendel so the first guy in 25 years in a generation to score 70 plus in his 17 year old season across the entire chl he has the most goals Scored in the CHL by a 17-year-old since Sidney Crosby. Connor McDavid hit 40 in his draft-eligible season. We are talking about a historic prospect on the scale, on, on the sort of scale that we've just, like, you have to go back to, like, Pat LaFontaine and Mario Lemieux to, like, accurately capture just how far ahead of his peers Connor Bedard is. This is a guy who profiles like a player who could score 30 for you on his ELC next year. Right? I especially think he's going to feast on the power play even if you even if you're someone who thinks it's going to take him a minute to figure out the 5 on 5 game, he's going to be a day one elite player in a stationary attacking scenario on on the power play. We don't get players like this coming into the NHL very often, once every 7 or 8 years. Um Truly, we're talking about a McDavid Crosby level prospect as opposed to a Stamkos Tavares, like Pat Kane, run of the mill first round prospect. Like, imagine thinking, putting a list together of like Tavares, Stamkos, Jack Hughes, and it's like run of the mill first rounder, first overalls. Like, this guy puts Austin Matthews in a run of the mill of first overall class. 
And Austin Matthews is a, an Ovechkin beret level rate goal scorer for his career to this point. Um, truly, we are talking about an untradeable pick, like a, a, an untradeable pick. I think there's no way. I don't even think Miller and the and the tenth overall pick gets you in the conversation. Oh, not even close. It, no. it doesn't like you 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 don't want to be the for the rest of your career. You'd be the GM that traded away essentially Connor Bedard. Yeah, yeah. Who wants that on their resume? No. Nobody. You can't do it. You cannot do it. Whoever gets Connor Bedard and, and you know, it's not just the player, right? And not just the hope and not just the fact that he's filling barns across Western Canada in the WHL, right? Like a sellout in Everett, a sellout in Calgary. He sold out the Saddle Dome. He sold out the Saddle Dome for the Regina St. Pat's. You don't want to be able to call your season ticket holders and say, hey, come watch 40 games of this guy. Go look at the 70 goals on YouTube and the wrist shot, the drag shot, unlike anything you've ever seen. Come on. No, no, not tradable. Not moving. I don't think there's many untradable assets in the sport, but there's certainly a small select list. Whoever wins the draft lottery on May 8th is going to have an untradable asset on their hands. Next question, Lena. Let's go. All right. Um, I mostly asked that one just because it was um, the... No, it's a fun one. It's a fun one, and people have been reacting in the text inbox saying that's insane. But um, okay, Woody texted what, what, and saying have said, have said have they don't like that the Bedard pick is not that tradable? there's no chance that that would happen. Yeah. Oh, what do you mean? There's no chance that that would happen. The Canucks have sailed away their chance of this. We all know that <laughs> people people love to reap but don't like to sow. Is that what you're telling me, Lena? Shocker! Absolutely. Shocker! <laughs> all right, uh, Woody wants to. Um, ask about what does the Canucks so-called new structure actually look like on the ice? Not the numbers comparison, but how is it visually noticeable? Okay, I'm going to kick it over to Harmon Dial, and and I'm going to do this with a quick thing that I want to tell the audience. So there's certain things that the way that I watch hockey as a reporter and and previously a PR guy is like ingrained in me. So like one thing I do every 10 seconds, you know, every 10 seconds when you're driving, you check the rearview mirror. Every 10 seconds when I'm at a live hockey game, I count the bodies on both benches. I make sure that I haven't missed a guy leaving. That's just like a habit of mine because I want to know if a guy has left the bench. So I'm literally habitually just counting to 18. Um, <laughs> I'm counting to 18 on a, on a regular basis on both benches, ignoring both goalies. Um, Harmon has a view I think I think because of your past playing holding mid and soccer and and on and on you you have an innate ability to notice positional and tactical changes within a game the way that I notice guys leaving the bench or 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 like line changes line juggles um it's really remarkable so you're the perfect guy to answer this question thanks for gassing me up there I think um right off the bat one of the most jarring differences was the the improvement in the level of puck support that the defenseman had where again under Boudreaux and Green it seemed like most of the time when defenders would get the puck and it would be their job to transport the forwards would be so disconnected it'd be like the wingers blowing the zone or the the center a lot of time other than Elias Pettersson would not be deep enough to like be available for a short pass to help relieve pressure whereas now you're seeing wingers come as deep as possible. You're seeing centers come really deep, which means that if you're a defenseman now and you're under pressure, all you have to do is make the 5-10 to 10 foot pass. Now, 
that makes their job a lot easier. Now, it obviously increases the level of responsibility for the forwards, and you need forwards who can make plays under pressure. It's it's not always uh, the safest way to in terms of making plays up the middle, but that's an area where they've they've really you know seen a significant improvement. And also, that's an area where when you look at Bo Horvat departing, like one of the interesting interesting things about Horvat stylistically is that he didn't play like a traditional center on the breakout. You know what I mean? Like he'd often be the first guy trying to leave the zone, lead the rush because that would be his biggest strength. He never really orchestrated defenses on exits. And I think him, him sort of like his departure also is like, not that it's helped their breakout or anything, but you're, you have personnel that I think are more compatible with that style. Again, I'm, I'm going to be curious to see if it holds up against better for checking teams because as we saw against the Kings, it's it's not just as simple as guys being in the right position. You need to be able to execute really well, but that's been an area that's excelled. The other sort of biggest practical difference is that they've they've significantly cut down the rush chances. I think that has to do not so much with X's and O's, and I think that's the overall message with you know the Tockett structure is I don't think there's a ton that's changed structurally. I think it's more been about mindset, more been about philosophy. They've cut down their egregious turnovers, which when you look at rush chances and how they happen in the NHL, they usually require some type of mistake, right? An offensive zone turnover. Uh, a defenseman at the blue line tries to take a point shot, go, bounces off a shin pad, odd man break the other way. Uh, it, it requires some level of like, oh, let's say uh, you've got a three on two and, a de- and you've got your defenseman jumping up to try and be the trailer. You miss the chance, puck rims around, the other team has a chance to sort of take advantage of that. The Canucks, by virtue of not turning the puck over on offenses on entries, have sort of like been able to cut down a lot of those rush chances. So I think those are the two biggest sort of differences that uh, that I've noticed, which has then in turn allowed them to actually have numbers. Their forwards actually are back in the neutral zone when the opposition, when there's a change in possession. Honestly, one of the biggest questions for me going into next season is when the new coach bump fades and the stakes are high will this team that has occasionally struggled to maintain a high work rate have their forwards back checking with the same level of vigor and commitment that we've seen since talk it took over right because the difference between how this team played for bruce down the stretch last year and how they played for bruce at the start of uh, uh, this season couldn't have been starker this team can't have a repeat of that if they're going to have any hope of you know being the 15th best team in the league. It's a lot more physically demanding. And I'm telling you, I think the really the biggest difference has been the forwards like t- have so much more responsibility, which they should, yes. right? Like that's how good teams, that's how their forwards help out. But what's interesting is this forward group, I think innately doesn't have a lot of like natural two-way studs. Mm. So they have to work harder to excel in that style. And I'm curious to see if they can keep that up over an 82-game season. Because you watch somebody like JT Miller, right? Yep. He's not a natural two-way guy. He's been excelling there. But you watch him, like especially in, in a game like the Ottawa one, it's like he is working his absolute tail off, right? And you're demanding that out of a lot of guys on the roster. So can you sustain that over a full season when the when the coaching bump has sort of faded a little bit potentially that's you know that's one of the question marks um surrounding this team absolutely lena what's up next 
Okay, this I gave you a WhatsApp, asked... by the way. I just wanted to let you know. Love that. Thank you. <laughs> um, so this has been texted in by multiple people, so I figured I'll just kind of group it all together. But this is for all of the people chasing the Connor Bedard sweepstakes. Um, the just general confusion as to why Talkit is riding Demko, Patterson, Hughes, and Miller even more so than their regular playing time. Um, just like... They're asking for an explanation as to why that's happening. I don't have an answer for you. I've asked talking about it a couple Possible. times. Yeah, Possible. Yeah, I mean, answers. I've asked talking about it a couple times, and he like has been self-critical, right? He said like that's not my intention. I want to get their numbers down, and then has praised them for the way that they, you know, are looking back on the bench and want to play. Um, I fundamentally, I think this organization cares about how they perform down the stretch. I think they believe that their fans, uh, and in particular their paying customers, buy into a, a strong finish as, as a sign of hope for next season. And I think organizationally this club has tried to design um, and has successfully done so um, a late run under a new head coach against soft competition that will create a sense of hope uh, around this team. Um do I think that is a sensible way to approach winning in the contemporary NHL? I don't, but I think that matters to this club. And and I think it has historically, right? Like this is not a Brian Flores situation. It's, it's quite the opposite. The instructions from ownership and business leadership on down to the hockey operation or the coaching staff in the hockey operations group are, we want to win games down the stretch. That's what this organization wants. Here's a theory for you. I'm curious to see what you think. I don't know how I feel about it, but, one one of the things that I thought about was that when Boudreaux took over and he gave Pedersen and Hughes the reign to kill penalties, which they didn't have before, all of a sudden that created for those top guys they had he had buy-in, mm. right? Hughes would talk about, at least at the start, Bruce is the type of coach that I want to run through a wall for. Right. Right. So by giving them that level of responsibility and trust and opportunity that they didn't have before, Boudreaux was able to sort of like at least build some initial trust with his top guys. Now, Taki coming in, he's going to be a lot more demanding. He's not going to be the fun vibes coach that Boudreaux is, right? He's going to be strict. He's going to be working these guys really hard. So do you think that part of, I guess, getting an overall team level buy-in is okay I'm looking at my most important players I need and I, I want these guys to be happy I, I need them to sort of be on my side and so uh, as a result of that I want to show them that it, you know as long as they're buying in that I'm going to give them everything they want in terms of ice time and opportunity that could be part of it but fundamentally this is more than that right like th- th- I agree this is more than just motivational this is um a team that's trying their hardest to eke out every point from every game they're playing. Um, Hughes playing the last three minutes, uh, sorry, three of the last four minutes last night, you know, that's not necessary for buy-in that's necessary because Hughes gives us the best chance to win, right? Like that's, that for me would be sort of the long and short of, of how I'd view it. Like, I think there's a part of it that might be like relationship and motivational tactics, but I think the bigger part is is that Rick Tockett was brought in and the instructions from on down are win. Go win. We want wins. So that's what this organization is doing. Um, is it, in my view, a failure to grapple in any sort of realistic terms with what 
actually helps you win in the big picture in this league, yeah. But I, I think that's what this organization's about. One thing I'd add about this ice time, like if you're looking for things that are and aren't sustainable from how this club has performed since the coaching change, put number one on your list being Hughes, Pedersen, Miller's ice time, right? Like it's one thing for them to do it for a matter of weeks and have success. And you may, might need it as the season goes along here and there. Certainly you're going to need it in the playoffs. Um, but you also might need it because injuries happen or, or what have you, or it's, it just gives you your best chance to win. Hughes, I don't think, is going to be close to being at his best if he if he's being asked to play 2,500 minutes next season. Like, I, I think the injury risk gets too high when you're spending that much time out on the NHL ice sheet, even though Hughes is built like Gumby and can skate all day. Um, I think there's a risk factor to it, and I think there's a, a, a wearing down factor to it, too. Uh, Pedersen and Miller playing 20 plus that's you know 1600 1700 minutes over the course of a full season Uh uh-uh you're not they're not going to be at their best late in the year if they're being played like that in October and November we even saw with Colorado when the abs were were just hammered by injuries Mm. up front and on the back end that the abs were basically like literally a five six man team with like McKinnon with uh, Rantanen with Lekkinen with uh, Makar with Taves Bednar had no choice but to run those guys basically into the ground and they were starting to burn out and there are two-way results yeah sort of went down and then what happened now there's injuries from that group of guys like we saw this with the Sedin twins and Ryan Kessler when John Tortorella took over um and here's the counter example go look at Patrice Bergeron's average ice time five on five over the last five six years because part of the story of why Bergeron sees your aging curve, laughs, breaks it in half over his knee and throws it into the um, the bay out in Boston, is he plays second-line deployment. Like, at 5-on-5, five five, for years, the Bruins have been disciplined enough to take an aging player, one of the best, classiest, most remarkable leaders in the game, and play him 14 minutes a night 5-on-5. Five five. And they've done it year after year after year, and what's it done? It's extended his window. It's extended their window. It's extended his effectiveness. He's always at his best late in the year. This isn't this isn't rocket science. This is common sense. And it's one thing for the organization to approach these games like they're playoff games. I can think that's wild. I can think that's completely out of step with how uh, an organization should be approaching these games. But, you know, at the end of the day, it is what it is. What I think flies in the face of common sense is to believe that this team if they require Hughes Pedersen and Miller to play at like this volume uh in in terms of their minutes load to win games to to assume that they're just going to be able to do that over 82 I think that's asking too much similar thing we're gonna have to have that conversation next season when it comes to Demko's workload too they're gonna have to be really careful about just how much they play him because in today's game like we we've seen it. Guys can't play sixty five. Well, and we're gonna games. we're we're not there yet. We're not there yet because guys haven't played enough games yet. But last year, by the time we got into the playoffs, it was I think eighteen players had played sixty or fifty five or more. Eighteen goalies had played fifty five or more, and all of them either got hurt late, stunk in the playoffs, right? Like all of them except three either got hurt late, stunk in the playoffs or were poor all season long, and the exceptions to it were Sorokin, Vasilevsky, and Shesterkin, 
right? Like three absolute robots. Even now, I'm curious to see how Hellebuck plays down the stretch because the last few weeks he's really faltered. Right. And that's a big reason why the Jets are in a pre- – like I, I guess this weekend really helps solidify their spot. But for a second there, it looked like they were trending they were in trending. a scary direction. Yeah. Well, and that's and that's so my goalie stat on usage is going to need a little bit more time um, to sort of play out, but yeah, I mean the the leading games played guys are only over fifty, so we'll see. We're, right now, we've got nine goalies over fifty in the NHL, and it looks like we're going to have a pretty comparable amount. We're probably going to end up with about twenty ish goalies who play sixty or more, and we'll see. Uh, you know, a couple rounds into the playoffs, like. How much did rest matter? How much did discipline over the course of a season matter? Um, we're getting to a point in terms of understanding human performance where we can really account for these things in a different way. When I was growing up, you never heard the term like schedule loss. You never heard like a- a- an analyst go on the radio and say something like, well, they lost, but they were playing the second leg of a back-to-back and they didn't get completely pulverized. It was an okay performance. Sometimes these games happen. Um we're now well, way more attuned to it. The league itself is way more attuned to it. But let me put it this way. Let me put it this way to you. Um, Linus Allmark, okay? The best team in the league here. 42 games played. That's 19th in the NHL. How much do you want to bet that he doesn't get to 50? Like, if, if you set the over on 49 and a half more starts the rest of the way for Linus Allmark, I would probably bet the under. I think it's going to be a 50-50 split with Swayman. And then the Bruins are going to be like, hey, we have the fresher goalie going into the playoffs. And every team they face, uh, that's going to be an edge. There's real advantages if you're able to use guys in a way. Uh, pace yourself. Pace yourself. That's that's The regular season is a marathon, right? And you can't be sprinting with your top horses the whole way through. Harmon, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. We'll do it again tomorrow? Hell yeah. All right. We'll be live from Rogers Arena, the mobile Kintech studio, tomorrow on Canucks Talk. Thank you for joining us. You are listening, of course, to Sportsnet 650.